Okay, with Andrea Sparrow, The Temptation of Trees is the 40-minute short film from LA Documentary Film Festival. Uh, kind of a really nicely photographed film about the forested land. I guess that it's about like global warming and it's like the better we treat the forest, the better the environment is, the better the world is, I guess, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, forests simply have the ability to pull a ton of carbon out of the atmosphere and bigger trees pull more carbon. So growing forests is going to help us in the long run. So this is obviously a very important film. Very, It was very entertaining film as well. So it's like, but it's also a lot of information has been gathered in this film. So I'm so curious about, I know you have a, um, you have a history of documentary filmmaking, but when did this film come to you? When did you decide I'm going to make this film? Uh, well, actually, a friend of mine, uh, Ben Elkins, who did the cinematography and editing, uh, he had been uh, mucking around in the forest in Western Oregon and became really interested in a small forest called the Elliott State Forest. And he wanted to make a film about the Elliott State Forest because the state of Oregon was considering selling it, uh, which could have gone very sideways, right? Um, but once, uh, I Are started, they allowed to do that? They'll just sell, sell something like that? Well, right. It was interesting. It had, it had certain, uh, parameters. Ultimately what happened with that forest, it, it was sold to the university. Okay. Um, uh, and it was, I believe the state was, gave them a huge, uh, break on the price. And now it's a research forest for Oregon state. Uh, with really specific uh, areas that they have to leave alone. All the old growth has to be left alone. Okay. And where the marbled merlets uh, nest also has to be left alone. So ultimately it, it turned out pretty well. I think not a hundred percent in terms of conservationists, but definitely better than being sold to a timber company, right? Um, so Ben was super interested in this forest. He had lived in Oregon and it was near, I guess, where he had lived before. Um, but when he brought it to me, uh, COVID had just started and um, he was like, I wanna make a film about the Elliot. And I was like, okay, well, you know, look, look into it and start talking to people and ultimately uh, started connecting to all these scientists um, Beverly Law, William Muma, you know, uh, Susan uh, Messino. And once I started talking with them, I just realized like, we can't just talk about the Elliot. Like the Elliot is just this itty bitty thing where the problem with forests is actually in our country is, is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and so tons of research uh, later, uh, we started we started really filming in earnest with the interviews and so forth. So it was about 14 hours of interviews with people. Not everyone made it into the film, but certainly everyone um, you know contributed in terms of the the information and understanding that we're trying to convey. So that's how you kind of started your kind of spine of your film. You kind of went out, interviewed people, and then kind of figured out what the story was from there. Yeah, I mean, over that first summer, you know, COVID started in like March, it was all I was just calling people and, you know, someone would be like, let me introduce you to this person, let me introduce you to that person. So I was just having tons of phone conversations with people to really get a sense of the issues. Um, you know, and then after that, uh, I had more 
of a clear idea of of how I wanted to direct those interviews, right? Okay, gotcha. So the actual filmed interviews were a separate thing from the many hours of research and conversations that I had over that first summer. Um, and then Ben was going into the forest and filming the B footage for the film, um, which he did a beautiful job on. And uh, we kind of put all of it together, you know, sort of last winter, I would say. Gotcha. Um, you know, it didn't take long. <laughs> and in the beginning of the film, you put yourself in the film and you kind of like, what, what was the reasoning why you put yourself in the film? Yeah, I didn't actually. My very first right of the film, uh, I was not in it, um, but it was uh, something like 84 minutes long. And I got a bunch of feedback that that was too long. Um, so I ended up having to put myself in it in order to bridge certain ideas in a more concise way uh, than I was able to do by piecing the interviews together. Because um, there was just kind of a lot of territory that I needed to, to cover to shift from one aspect to the next of forests. And the quickest, most clear way to do it seemed to be um, my commentary in between these sections of the film. Uh, it was not my favorite thing to do. <laughs> have you ever have you ever done that before? No. In your films? Mm -mm. No. And it's not ideal. I mean, this is the first long film that I've made, right? Okay. I've done these shorter, these shorter pieces where I was writing uh, something that related to specific footage and research, right? And so I might do voiceover or someone else might do voiceover, but I never had to actually be in the film. Yeah. But in this case, it was kind of a lot. And so it made more sense to, I guess, introduce me as a, a character sort of. I, it was out of necessity. It was out of necessity to get the film down to like a really, and it is a ton of information packed in there even so, but it was a little less anyway. And then, so then you said you had your your DP and your editor kind of got all the B-roll full footage. It's some amazing kind of shots in the film. And then you interviewed, how many people, how many interviewers made, made the cut? Uh, I want to say in the end, it was seven people made the cut. And I believe we interviewed nine total. Um, and it was like 14 hours of footage, of interview footage. Because like Bill, Bill Muma, I mean, I could have talked to that guy for six hours and not... Yeah everything in his brain you know and Susan Messino the same way Beverly I mean all of them are really just unbelievably informed people uh in their areas of research and so super compelling you know it was hard it was hard but in the end I think I think we conveyed what was really important which was this idea of um letting existing forests grow and finding some incentives for that, finding alternatives for uh, paper products. So we're not cutting down 400 year old trees for toilet paper, mm. um, you know, and then recycling more wood. Like it's ridiculous the amount of wood that we throw away. Um, it's an expensive process, but wood maybe should be more expensive because there's an additional cost uh, to the environment and to the atmosphere when you cut down trees. So yeah. I don't know. Okay. Just from a just simpleton's perspective, it's like I guess the what I was taught in school. Maybe it's like they 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 a forest is built, it grows, and then they chop down the trees for our human resources, and then they mm -hmm. build up, they plant up the trees at the same time. So then by the time those trees are built, 
those those plants those trees are kind of built again so there yeah. it's like a it's like an assembly line of trees but i well, guess yeah idea. okay so that is that is essentially how the timber industry and yeah. uh some of these these timber companies have claimed sustainability right they say if we cut down 100 trees we plant 101 trees so it's sustainable yeah uh, but there's two problems with that the first is that when you do these clear cuts um there's actually an enormous amount of carbon in the soil also mm-hmm. up to 50 percent of the carbon stored in forests is actually stored in the soil when you cut those trees down and you clear the land and you um burn you know any extra you lose the soil carbon and that does not come back in the regrowth it takes much longer than that to rebuild that super complex network of mycelium and all the things in the in the soil that's the first additional loss that you can never regain through replanting Uh, and then the second loss uh, which the timber industry uh, kind of just ignores is the amount of fossil fuels and chemicals and all these other things that are required to do this very mechanized removal of entire swaths of forest and then transport it to be, you know, utilized as timber material, I mean, sorry, as lumber, and up to 50% of those trees is is actually just lost as waste there too. And they're getting better about that. They're starting to use it for other things, but um you can't you can't get that extra and i i think in the i said it in the film it's something like 780 million tons of of co2 that are on top of the the carbon loss yeah and this the timber industry is not a co-op it's a it's a business (laughs) so it's like it's a a wall street business so that's the other thing to remember is it's unusual for those big timber companies to actually be like local and living. Those people don't live where they're cutting that timber down, where they're destroying those places. And if you do, it's maybe not quite so compelling. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, they, it's like staying removed from something. Right. So you don't have to like see, see it firsthand. I actually read the book, uh, secret life of trees, maybe during COVID. Yeah. And I'm sure you read it. It's like, that kind of blew my mind. That, that was like, that was like my introduction to this world. It was like how, you know, like they, this way you just described, like they're living, there's, there's life underneath the, underneath the surface, right? That's very important for us, for important yeah. for everything, I guess, right? Yeah, it is. It is important for everything. And it's just, I, I think Susan Messino says it really well in the film. It's like, we don't really fully understand how these ecosystems work. I mean, we kind of have a general idea, but we don't know how every element of uh, and every piece works with the others uh, and and what is necessary for those ecosystems to remain like healthy and contributing to the overall health of the, of the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we start messing around in them, we there's a kind of a level of hubris that like, oh, yeah, you can do this without consequences. Um, that turns out not to be true. I mean, we... We need those forests for so many different things, you know, and, and lumber building houses is one part of it, but um, you know, most of the carbon from houses even ends up back in the atmosphere in 50 years. I mean, it's just, it's just not, you can store carbon in trees and soils for thousands of years, potentially. 
So it's just absurd to think that like, oh yeah, wood products are a long storage mechanism. They're not. Yeah. I mean, usually you get a house that's a hundred years old, but the vast majority of houses and buildings don't last that long. And all of it goes in the landfill, which is just, you know, at least we should be recycling that. We could be making it into a number of things. So it's a I think, the, I think the, the biggest issue is that this is an on this is unnatural. Like we're I don't think we're supposed to be doing this, but <laughs> we we're doing it, I guess, right? And then we're now yeah. we have to try to maintain it and control it, I guess, right? Yeah, and there are opportunities uh, to if you want to manage a forest, if you're not going to just let it grow, there are ways of extracting from the forest that are not so detrimental. Um, you know, the way that Lori Weyburn's organization, the Pacific Forest Trust, goes in and is trying to take a forest that was planted too densely, because that's what timber companies do. They yeah. tend to plant things, I guess, on 14-foot centers, which is uh, generally closer than the majority of trees would. They want to maximize their profit, right? Maximize the growth, yeah. That's right, but it's not, I mean, there's no room for understory, there's no room for diversity, there's no room for, you know, anything but those trees. And so if you're going to take one of those parcels of land, you can go in and, and start at least attempting to replicate kind of the larger aspects of a natural forest, which are going to be some areas that are dense, some areas that are less dense, some areas... Yeah open right um and you can pull timber and get uh remuneration for that timber without taking down the entire forest you know what i haven't figured out yet is like why i figured like they would have they would have created something that you don't need to take the timber like you know they would have manufactured what we get out of the trees in another way you know what i'm saying it's like fake yeah. ikea furniture it's like you know what I mean? Paper. Why? Why do we need like all these things? Like, why do we still? Why are we still doing this? Haven't they? Haven't they invented another way to do it? It's easier. I mean, honestly, the stuff that goes into like particle board that could easily be made from recycled lumber because it's yeah. just popped up into tiny bits. Um, but the difficulty with it, the, there's an expense in getting the like the nails and things like that out of the timber, the lumber, essentially cleaning it so that it is uh, ready for recycling can be can be just put in there. Where right. obviously if you cut a tree down, there's nothing in it. Just shove it into a chipper. And, it's, yeah, it's pure, right? It's natural. Right. So there's there's an ease with that, but like I said, the 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 actual cost is it's just one of those things. Like the actual cost is not reaped upon the company that's doing that damage. That cost comes to society where you have to look at these, these horribly disfigured forests. You have to suffer the, the damage to waterways and lands because there is no forest. Uh, and then the loss of, of carbon and putting more carbon into the atmosphere um, and the, the loss of the potential storage uh, that's another huge cost that we we will begin to appreciate much more as climate change becomes more severe. The, the, let's obviously want to talk about your interviews for a second. The the one thing that stood out for me is that I'm I, I obviously get to watch a lot of environmental films, short films, and things <laughs> like that. And the difference between your film and most people's films is that the people you interviewed they're they're like seasoned people. They they this is their life's work. They've been doing it for a long time. Whereas other films, it seems to be like just young know, people who are fresh out of school, you know, huh. ten years into their world, and like and uh, and basically this is what their causes. But a lot of people, especially in the beginning, like 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 they're very they're this is they've been doing this for fifty years, oh, decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah 
Totally. I mean, Bill, Bill Muma and George Woodwell, I mean, those guys, George Woodwell was actually um, one of the primary scientists that was working to get DDT made illegal because uh, uh, finding that it, that it uh, damaged bird populations because it, it remained in the environment. Um, you know, and he said, I asked him about that and he said it took, I think it was like 10 or 15 years once that data was super clear to actually get legislation that made the thing uh, illegal, this chemical. And that's just one chemical, right? And so he's been testifying before Congress about climate since mm -hmm. uh, the early 80s. If he's still talking to you, he must be like frustrated out of his mind. And man, that guy, <laughs> I, he is so committed and he knows his science so well. Uh, you know, he started the Woodwell uh, Climate Institute, which is, it's now called that. Um, yeah. it, I mean, I, I admire these guys so much because they just remain passionate and committed and and just keep going. They just keep going. It inspires me. Knowing. That's that's the question I have. It's like they must go through so much crap and like bureaucracy, like within the, yeah. the political system. It's like what keeps them going? Well, I think what keeps them going is that they they fully understand what's happening and they want to contribute to a better future. I mean, which is, I mean, essentially what keeps me at it, right? Yeah. I I don't want to see the planet reach two degrees of warming. I mean, that, it, it doesn't sound like very much. I think one of the hardest things, it just doesn't sound like very much. But if you look at sort of the most recent IPCC report that came out in February, um, two degrees has just these massive consequences. I mean, for humans, just full on, you know, places that become uninhabitable, uh, food insecurity, like all these different parts where, you know, if we if we can just kind of find some ways to shift our behavior a bit, we, we have the opportunity to avoid that, let alone, you know, higher levels of warming. Um, yeah, this, is, this has been going on for a long time. It's just that humans only take care of the issue when they have to, right? That's the problem. They, if they don't see anything, they're not going to bother with it. Well, and, and climate is particularly hard, right? Like if you think about kind of the last major atmospheric thing we had to deal with, it was the ozone layer, you know, the, the hole in the ozone yeah. caused by CFCs, right? I mean, that was a pretty quick deal. Like, oh, this chemical is doing that. Stop using the chemical, hole started healing. We love that. It's like immediate you know, gratification yeah. for changing something in our systems that is very convenient for us, refrigeration, right? Uh, climate is just so much more complex and the time frame is so long. Like even if we stopped putting uh, any carbon in the atmosphere right now, we will still see warming for like another two decades because of the, the carbon that's already there. Yeah. Right? So we could change everything, we could give everything up and, you know, basically we'd still be looking at, you know, 20 or 30 years of increased warming and then it would level off and then it would come down, right? Yeah. So it's finding, it's finding ways to motivate people. I mean, there are some really amazing people out there doing this work, right? I mean, the people I interviewed in the film, if you think about Paul Hawken, you know, he's written two books, Drawdown and Regeneration, and both of them are just these comprehensive, like, we can do it. Yeah. 
doesn't require, you know, never driving a car again or whatever it is that people are afraid of. No, but you just need the, the from a political standpoint, the, everybody needs to band together, right? Like in, in basically yeah. believe in something. It's like when you're having, you know, certain powers that be that who say this is, doesn't exist and they don't care and they're care, but they care about the economy and they care about, which is understandable. But if they, they all they care about is that is getting votes and, and getting creating jobs, then then basically and this is like way in the back seat, then this is when trouble occurs, I guess, yeah, right? It's short sighted. I mean, it's hard. COP twenty seven just ended and you know, there the one cool thing that came out of it was that uh the uh bigger wealthy countries agreed to support the the poorer countries that will be suffering from climate change as a result of our yeah. uh, industrialization um so there's a commitment to that not a dollar amount not a plan but still a commitment to it what didn't happen uh was any kind of comprehensive you know drawdown of carbon uh in terms of emissions and also in an ideal world actually pulling carbon from the atmosphere which is what our natural systems allow us to do if we maintain them, right? Um, so that, I mean, it, it is, it's it's so challenging. It's so challenging, but um, I mean, we have to do it. You know, Sebastian Unger wrote a book called Tribe, which I I really think could, could if, if we can frame it the right way, we can create a feeling of tribal um, togetherness. Uh, for everyone, all humans dealing with climate change, because he talked about like World War II and and how people felt this uh, commonality, right, in in a cause, yeah, and and were so much more like generous and um, you know less self serving during this period of time, and I mean essentially that's really what we need to be doing. But that the argument with that is that their lives were at stake. Literally, where they like, okay, so we have to defeat the we have to defeat Japan because they they destroyed our our island, and we have to defeat the Nazis because if we don't, then we'll we'll we're gonna die too, or become Nazis ourselves, or they're gonna take. So, but the the, the analogy with that is that they you have to band together because that's what humans can do, right? But when the when it comes to like you said, like when nobody's paying attention, when you're saying that it's gonna be thirty years, it's like nobody sees what. The problem is like physically in their hand in front it's of them. Slow they, motion version. Yeah, but it's hard for humans <laughs> to do like together. Humans will be paying for it, yeah. and that's the. I mean, that also you know speaking to what you said about like uh, essentially getting the political will to spend the money yeah. now. Um, you know, we're going to spend that money. We're going to spend a lot more uh, recovering from and just like putting out fires, literally and figuratively. Uh, for climate change like if we spent it now it wouldn't be this like oh crap you know there's another mega fire in California and now there's no water going to California because the Colorado River hasn't got enough water in it yeah. like mead full enough to provide the water downstream right I mean the the it's a such a massive set of dominoes like on so many levels we would be smart to spend the money now but, but the thing, to use the water analogy in California is that because there's so much water is being used for capitalistic reasons like the almond farming or whatever. So they're every they they're using that that water for for financial gain. They're not using it. So you know what I'm saying? So then 
that's yeah. the issue that we have right now is that is that we live in this and I'm, I'm a capitalist and I'm not being down on it. I'm just saying that <laughs> that basically what I'm saying is that nobody that's that's number one priority. So all these things that that need to be done is there's going to be a, some sort of financial hit and people don't want to deal with that or or solve it. I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm just saying that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it is it's hard, but. But here's the thing. It's like, I mean, you're right. The the water situation, the Colorado River, I did uh, do a couple years of research and documenting all of the rivers that went into the Colorado River system and, you know, where where the water went when it was pulled out and these various aqueducts and so forth. And it's, I mean, that is a complicated thing, right? It's very complicated. It's very political. It's got all these you know, archaic laws attached to it, all kinds of things. Um, but if there's not enough water, it kind of doesn't matter <laughs> what all those laws are. It's just a done deal. I mean, if if Lake Mead goes below, I think it's 900 feet above sea level. If it goes below that, it's done. There's no water can get out of that yeah. lake. So it's just, I mean, and that's that's also like the climate thing. Like you can fuss about all the details all you want going yeah. forward, but if if we don't deal with it full on, it, it's going to happen anyway. It doesn't yeah. matter, you know. Yeah. And the US will be paying a price for that. And I suppose in some ways, like the fires in California, the drought in the West, you know, you've got floods and hurricanes and so forth. And yeah, when there's a huge, like when say like there's a huge youth earthquake and, and a piece of California falls into the ocean or <laughs> yeah. no, on the other, I'm not trying to, you know what I mean? Or the other side where there's a huge, like a, like 10 hurricanes at once comes, comes into Florida and like right. literally like that's when people pay attention, I guess, right? Like that, that's the unfortunate part about it. It's like, it's like, something like that has to occur and then people are going to be oh all right, all right let's 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 think about well, it i will say you know i've been at this i'm talking about the mainstream i'm talking about like 90 percent yeah, of the yeah. But, but that said i mean i have been i've been paying attention to climate for 25 years or so now myself climate and human impact generally on the planet um through mining and all the other things we do um and i would say in the last five years there's been a meaningful uptick yeah amount of interest from just mainstream humanity in climate change i think those impacts are actually starting to be great enough that people recognize like whoa this is this is happening um because i mean the questions i get after people see the film are almost always about like okay i really want to do something about this like what am I supposed to be doing? And that's really what my next film is going to be. It's like, uh, it, it's like, this is literally what you can do in your yeah. house, your own self. And I think when people realize like there's actually relatively uh, low impact from the standpoint of compromising your lifestyle, changes that you can make and collectively they have a massive impact on yeah. the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. I think people will get motivated. I, I think so too. I think there needs to be a big Super Bowl commercial uh, this year yeah. about, no, and like, this is where you can go yeah. to help. These are kind of expensive things, but I No, no, but that's what I'm saying. It's like, I can no, make it. <laughs> there's lots of people who have lots of money in the States, right? So basically. And we are, I mean, we're looking at financing this film a little bit differently because Ben and I paid for a lot of it. And then um, the Rolf Family Foundation paid for uh, another chunks uh, as well as the Alexa Rose Foundation. Um, so 
yeah, it would be nice not to have it so much come out. No, but it, I mean, like, I mean, about like, just about like, this is where, because I, the point yes. I was trying to make yeah. is that people don't know where they can go to help, right? Right. It's like, right. And I want to create those resources. Yeah, that's what I mean. That, really, so, really direct way. Yeah. Yes. And so, yeah. some say someone, say 50 million or 100 million people see it and like, oh, you know, at least if you get 10 of those, 10% of that 100 million and like they want to help out, that's yeah. when, yeah. And that's also how you create the political will to make exactly, it. and then because it's and all that stuff. Hundred percent. If it becomes a political issue, right, and right. it becomes people's voting interests, what they're voting for, then then politicians will change their mind because they're that's what they're geared for. They're they're driven by what the, what their what their voters want. So if it yeah. comes, that's, so that's how you drive it. You drive to get the people to basically be interested in it. And then that's how change could occur. It's democracy, I guess, right? So it's democracy at work. Yeah. So we're working on it. Yeah. So what did you think about the audience, our audience? What did you think about the, our audience feedback video that you uh, that we sent you? Yeah, that was cool. It was. It's good to see kind of a variety of people's response to the film. I feel like you know people generally got it. Um, one guy was a little bored, which I think is you know probably. There's going to be some people that will find it's a lot of information, you know, um, and I'm going to, yeah, I'll probably change things a little bit in the next film. Um, but I actually, I feel like it was also honoring people's intelligence. I mean, it, it's, you know, so many things are dumbed down and simplified to the point that they say almost nothing. And I don't really want to participate in that. I, I do believe that people are perfectly capable of, of absorbing. 100%. Information and yeah. yeah, and I'm like, you know, and I think that I think that this film actually demonstrates that, and the audience feedback was a great way to hear about that, you know. Well, congratulations on this film. I think it's fantastic and uh, nice. You guys seem like a nice team with you as well. Great interviews. You're a very good interviewer and nicely photographed interviews as well. Like nicely done, nicely done. Yeah, uh, ben did a great job. Aging. So uh, hopefully we could see your next film and, uh, and I wish you the best with this on the festival circuit. Hopefully you'll get distribution deal or whatever you're looking for with this film. That'd be great. Thanks so much. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven.